From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Hey, thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, your RV, camper, taxi, that greasy spoon diner just off the interstate, your cabin in the woods. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. We're coming at you from the Great White North here in Toronto and Zoomerplex, located in the Liberty Village neighborhood of Toronto. A special hello to all of you listening to us live on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM, our flagship station. Uh, those of you streaming the show from the Zoomer Radio app uh, or ZoomerRadio.ca. Ra- Zoomer and, and speaking of the Zoomer Radio app, if you don't have it, you should get it. It's a free download. Uh, and, uh, of course, a lot of great music played on this station, not just this show. There's so much to listen to. George Janescu's Big Band Sunday Night and so forth. But uh, it's a free download from uh, Google Play, I believe, and uh, uh, the iTunes Store. And it's uh, it's very cool because once you download, you'll see it looks just like a transistor radio. It transforms your smartphone into a transistor radio. And that'll take you back. Uh, it looks very cool. So it's almost like a time machine. And um, uh, those of you listening to the Conspiracy Show app or listening to the show through the Conspiracy Show app, and I think we're around 2,500 subscribers now to the Conspiracy Show app, also a free download, Google Play and iTunes. Uh, those listening to the podcasts uh, on Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, TalkZone.com. Finally, uh, but uh, certainly not least, those listening in on one of our great affiliates uh, stateside. Uh, we're we're um, up over 30 now. And uh, so wherever and however you are listening to The Conspiracy Show, I bid you the warmest of welcomes. It's been a few weeks since the federal election up here in Canada. Our new Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, has been sworn in. So it's time to sift through the entrails and look back at that election. Independent researcher broadcaster George Freund is standing by to talk about what he sees as some political skullduggery. Uh, some, some, um, uh, well, I, the fix is in, he says. He heard from some polling clerks and returning officers here in Toronto who said the winners in their ridings were announced before their ballot boxes were even opened. Hmm. And George is going to reveal what he believes is a mechanism or the mechanism, the mechanism through which elections here in Canada and possibly in the U.S., are manipulated, are fixed. It's all about this special algorithm. He'll be by in a few moments to explain all. Rosemary Ellen Guiley will also join us at the bottom of the hour with another Paranormal News Roundup. Uh, Just a quick reminder, the complete seasons, one through season three of my television program, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, now available in HD through Amazon.com. Also available in the U.S. on Hulu. And, of course, Season 4 of the television show. Brand new episodes coming soon to Vision TV and across Canada. Still waiting for an actual air date, but they're all in the can and ready to go. Okay, here's how it sounded uh, a few weeks back on election night here in Canada. Our new Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. I didn't make history tonight. You did. And don't let anyone tell you any differently. I know that I am on stage tonight for one reason and one reason only, because you put me here. Over the past three years, you told us what you're going through. You told us that it's getting harder and harder to make ends meet let alone to get ahead. You told us you're worried about whether you'll be able to afford a dignified retirement. You told us that your communities need investment. You told us you need a fair shot at better jobs. You are the inspiration for our efforts. You are the reason why we worked so hard to be here tonight, and you will be at the heart of this new government. For 20 years, George Freund has been a talk radio junkie, revealing to millions upon millions the dark machinations of the shadow government. He's learned that corporate media is nothing but a slick propaganda machine to lure us into sleep. 
His wildly popular podcast, Conspiracy Cafe, is an alternative media forum that challenges popular opinion with difficult truths. As a student with a passion for the intelligence history of the world, events can be applied to those dictums. Those who don't know their history are condemned to repeat it. And if there's anything learned from history, it is people learn nothing from history. George Freund, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Oh, very good. Thanks, Richard. So, our uh, our new Prime Minister has been newly minted, just sworn in, uh, up at uh, Redu Hall. And uh, I get this email from you, oh, about um, four or five days ago. Uh, you were hearing from, I guess, some of the returning officers during election night some some rather strange uh, inconsistencies or occurrences. Uh, tell me about that, George. Well, the first one happened in Toronto Centre. I was talking to a person who was working as a returning officer, and she told me as uh, she pulled into the uh, place where they were going to count the ballot, she already heard the results on the car radio. For Toronto Centre, not for the national results, but for that riding. Just, well, yeah, I'll deal specifically with those ridings because that's where these officers were. Right. And she was just flabbergasted because she hadn't even got out of the car with the ballot boxes and opened them yet. And, uh, you know, I thought, well, you know, isn't that convenient? But it is a very strong liberal writing, so it's no big surprise. You know, I wasn't too sure exactly how they came to this uh, conclusion. Then I talked to another person who was working in Parkdale High Park. and That's this, an NDP writing. Yeah, well, it was. Mm-hmm. And I got the same story. You know, they were late getting to the place where they count the ballots. Uh, they were short a couple of people or something, and they had to wait. And then the same thing, it's 11 o'clock, they announced the victor, and they haven't even opened the ballot boxes. Well, but, uh, now, disabuse me of this, George, if I'm incorrect, but the way it works, I believe, is, uh, you know, each riding has, it could have, I don't know, 100 polling stations. So if they were the last, for example, if they were the last uh, polling station to report, uh, you know, maybe based on the findings of the other 99 polling stations, they were able to declare a winner. Is that not possible? A possible explanation? That's not how it works anymore, Richard. Okay. That's right. not how it's worked for a long time. We live with an illusion, and this is where the third returning officer came in and goes, my mother works for the CBC. We don't worry about the ballots. We use algorithms. The algorithm decides the election. And then right away, that was just like a lightning bolt into my heart because I'm very, very familiar with how the algorithm has worked in the past, primarily the book vote scam by the Collier brothers who laid out all these problems in the United States, uh, you know, back in the 90s when they, when they published this work. Their daughter, niece, uh, Victoria, is still running a website vote scam. And uh, this is what decides what's going on. It's well known in the media. In the interim, I was talking to a reporter in Toronto and seeing if, uh, you know, they'd be interested in writing stories about something like this. They go, oh, you know, they know all about the algorithm. That's what decides the ballots. Well, explain what this algorithm is, this, this mathematical formula that you say. Uh, now, is it a predictive tool? Uh, yes. And, uh, you know, I found a university research paper from the University of Rochester by a Piotr Falouzewski, a Polish guy, so I might not be pronouncing that too right. That was his Ph.D. thesis in 2008, and it's called Manipulation of Elections, Algorithms, and Infeasibility Results. Hmm. So this is an age, age old thing. This is what happened in vote scam. This is what happened in Canadian elections past when they got rid of Diefenbaker. The Americans were very keen on getting rid of Diefenbaker because he wanted, uh, he didn't want the nuclear missiles on Canadian soil. So he was deemed a risk, and the U.S. ambassador to Canada, Livingston Merchant, uh, decided that he was going to get rid of him with a couple of Air Force officers and the compliance of Canadian journalists. And uh, lo and behold, uh, a pollster by the name of Lou Harris came to Canada as part of the spin machine with his algorithms. The Harris poll. Well, that's a very famous pollster. Yes, indeed. That's the whole history of polls, uh, by and large. They go... You know, right back to the very beginning in World War II, they were designed as an intelligence uh, uh, trick. So that way, if you hear a poll about something and it says, you know, most people want this or that, then you'll accept it because you believe that the majority should rule. Well, or, or you know, there's there, depending on the size of the sample, the larger the sample, supposedly, the greater the accuracy 
and then, of course, there's always a margin of error. The, the larger the sample, the, usually the smaller the sample, or the, the, large, the smaller the, the margin of error. But let's, let's just go back to, uh, you mentioned these two, two ridings. You mentioned Parkdale and you mentioned Toronto Centre. Well, the Parkdale one was uh, most interesting because that was a close race. So the algorithm is based on the polls, and what the polls say uh, will generally be what the results are supposed to be. So they announce the algorithm's point of view, not the actual vote count. And uh, where Parkdale uh, High Park is a problem is the people who were counting the ballots were having a problem with this because, uh, you know, one of them was rather vulgar in her comments. Is, you know, I wasted my whole night counting these, you know, beep-beep things for nothing and uh, because that was a very tight race. And uh, you Parkdale know, was at the NDP, uh, the incumbent there was Peggy Nash. Correct. And she was running, uh, and she lost to a liberal. Yes. And and uh, he was celebrating at eleven o'clock, where they were still counting the the ballots, and it was one of those it could go either way uh, sort of uh, runs. And technically, when they use the algorithm, when you get to uh, a tight race, they're supposed to actually count the ballots and rely on the ballots. But that's like one of those Mary Poppins pie crust promises: easily made, easily broken. I'm starting to smell a, a very big rat there, mostly because I know the history of vote scam. I know how we uh, did the election with Diefenbaker, and they got rid of Pearson too later when he was just determined to be just a little too left of uh, center for the American point of view. Actually, they called him, you know, one of those pinko commies back in those days. Cause well, I remember there's a very iconic shot of. Um, of uh, actually, I'm not sure if this was captured on, photo- uh, on by a photograph. It may just be this story of. Uh, uh, Pearson, Mike Pearson, in the Oval Office, and he was lecturing Lyndon Baines Johnson about Vietnam, and LBJ reportedly uh, grabbed uh, Pearson yes. by the scruff of the neck. Actually, it was lower than that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay, I, I don't want to get sidetracked here, but now take me back into this discussion of this algorithm, which is a predictive tool. I, I got in... in uh, about as far in, in math as about grade nine, uh, and then I'm lost. So explain how, in principle, this as easily or as best you can, how this algorithm uh, is created and how it is used. Well, by and large, an algorithm is a step-by-step computation in uh, a finite space-time that calculates a function by data going in, just like you would have with any program in a computer, to get results coming out. But the beauty of uh, something like that is if we tweak the algorithm, and we probably saw this in the polls, where at the beginning we have a three-way split, and then it changes where they say, well, we're going to have a liberal majority all of a sudden in very short order. And that's been seen in American elections past, too, where the polls said one thing, and then all of a sudden the result is very different. One of the classics might be Truman holding up the Dewey wins uh, headline back in the 40s or whatever when he was elected president. Right, Dewey beats Truman. And, and, and you know, yeah. it's just completely and totally out of context. So what this algorithm does is it predict, you know, predicts the potential for the future. But just like any computer program, if you put in some varied statistics or varied data, you're going to get a different result come out. And with that, you could steal the election. And who creates the algorithm? That is something I don't know. So uh, who's, like when we vote, we have this illusion that we put this piece of paper in the box, and it's sacred, and it's going to be stored and looked after and counted properly and kept on record for a recount if necessary, and that's what decides the election, no matter how long it takes to count them. But I was always dubious about this lately because the elections are already for the 11 o'clock news, and I, you know, I've counted things. I used to work in the money industry, so I know what it's like to count a lot of pieces of paper, and... You were like, wow, you know, that's pretty fast. Like the polls close, and then in a couple of hours, you've counted all this paper, bagged it, tagged it, sealed it. Well, they did change uh, the law because people out on the West Coast were very annoyed that the election was being called even before they got out to cast their ballots. So they changed that, did they not, so that all the polls had to be closed before they announced? uh, No, the polls out West were still open while we were doing our results. But our results probably weren't even our real results. I, I, I'm the conspiracy guy just like you, and I'm starting to smell a rat. All right, George, let me just step in here. We'll take a time out. We'll come back. George Freund from Conspiracy Cafe, a very popular podcast, who joins us from time to time, and uh, is here, uh, as he says, he smells a rat with the last federal election. Uh, and our newly elected prime minister, just sworn in Justin Trudeau, may be a usurper. We'll find out more when The Conspiracy Show continues right after this. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. 
The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We are back with George Freund from Conspiracy Cafe. Just a reminder, coming up at the bottom of the hour, our paranormal investigator, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, joins us, as she does this time every month for our Paranormal News Roundup. All right, back to the uh, the federal election. And uh, George Freund, in summary, saying that uh, there is an algorithm that is used as a predictive tool to uh, sort of extrapolate and predicts the outcome of elections. But, as he uh, has explained... The uh, I guess the inputs, uh, the data inputs on this algorithm can be massaged, manipulated uh, to create a desired outcome. Is that essentially what you're saying, George? Yes, indeed. And that's what the thesis uh, that we were talking about deals with, uh, how to do it uh, in very fine technical detail that's beyond my mathematical capabilities. But we see the same pattern again. The Obama team sent some of their key players to work in the Trudeau election campaign just like Lou Harris came up back in the 60s. And it's like a repetitive program. I'm seeing the same thing happen again. And that these people come up, they have an agenda to get Harris, our, uh, our Prime Minister before, uh, Mr. Stephen Harper, out. Not that that's a, a big problem with many people, but it's how it's done. Uh, was it done by tweaking the results so that we would have a liberal majority government and then throwing the ballots to the wind? Was there a, you know, a behind-the-scenes uh, backroom deal made to uh, maybe surrender some of the NDP seats uh, that may have uh, prevented Mr. Trudeau from having a majority government so that we could have a, an American-based common agenda that's more in line with what Mr. Obama wants. And uh, those are very, very serious allegations that are being made uh, on my part. And uh, I, I smell this rat that they, they threw this in. Nobody seems to be too much interested to uh, look in how the algorithm is used and why certain seats were lost. Why don't we have like a mandatory recount uh, on certain things to know that the paper ballots are really what they're said to be and that it's just automatic that some writings are picked at random and uh, we verify that uh, what we have there just to make sure that we're not cheated because it's just so technically capable uh, in this modern era to tweak elections. We have to be absolutely certain we have what we have. And some of the uh, mystery things behind Mr. Trudeau are absolutely scary. And, uh, you know, some of the uh, material I have here about his attending Moss, Moss in Montreal that, you know, had their funding cut off because of terror activity. They're on the watch list of the Department of Homeland Security. They had people attending, one who was in Guantanamo, uh, other chaps who are uh, uh, co-conspirators, as they're called, for the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. What is your source, George, that, that he was well, these attending are all, these these Well, I'll publish things from uh, the news. Okay. It's just it's stuff the media just lets slide off the floor. So one of them was called Justin Trudeau's Islamist Revival. It was a big thing in maybe some conservative uh, spheres that, uh, you know, this mosque he was going to was uh, supported by uh, a organization called Irfan that uh, is really in trouble with their banking uh, criteria that it's all under watch from American intelligence this conference reviving the Islamic uh, spirit had people that you know basically should be in jail like they believe uh, homosexuals should be stoned that you can beat your wife but only lightly and things so they're like advocating this. Sharia law uh, yes, you know, massive application of Sharia law and funding coming down the road from Saudi sources, which aren't exactly too nice. And we have to be very, very concerned about this, especially since he's going to be bringing in a lot of refugees very shortly. And uh, I question the whole process of this. The rioting that's going on in Europe just seems to be scandalous. And uh, some of the uh, p pictures I've seen that are even-handed, as opposed to the warm, fuzzy photos the CBC uses, were people who looked like they came out of Colonel Gaddafi's army. They were young, fit, strong, single men, and uh, you know, just looked like they were soldiers, as opposed, to, you know, definitely they weren't Syrian, and they hardly seemed to be refugees. So I'm I'm very concerned about that, uh, as you know, someone who may be having the whole fabric of our country turned over overnight. And, uh, you know, why are these refugees going to military bases as opposed to the local church basement or something like that? Is that because that's where the arms are stored? Uh, these are very serious questions that have to be asked uh, from this man. The whole thing that got this started, I know I sent you that uh, when it came out, was this propaganda photograph of the dead child on the beach. Yes. That wasn't a dead body. <laughs> There's no decomposition. 
Uh, when you drown, you have frothing at the mouth. There's absolutely nothing there that would imply the child's dead. And I found another picture of the child in another place behind a big rock with the same policeman taken from another angle on like NBC News or something like that that disappeared off the Internet quickly. So I'm glad I save all those uh, things. And I wrote up a blog on that, that that was a propaganda photo, and that child was not dead. And then it turns out the father's a people smuggler and drinker uh, of you know lesser-known repute. So I just look at this as a giant red herring to open the floodgates, as Colonel Gaddafi said in his time, 500,000-man army is going to come across the Mediterranean and uh, infiltrate Europe if anything happens to him. Is, are, are we well on the way to this? There's legitimate refugees, sure. Bring them in. I don't have a problem with that. But at the same token, we have to be very, very careful that we don't allow in any dangerous influences. And Mr. Trudeau, when he was attending these mosques that are on the watch lists in Canada and the United States, said the prayer. And when you say the prayer in front of two adult Muslim men, you're converted. Uh, did he convert, or was he just going through the motions? Mm. The scary part was it was a nonpartisan affair. Julian Fantino was there in his capacity as chief of police back in the day in 2012, and former RCMP Commissioner Zaccardelli was there, and uh, so it was a very broad-based thing. Uh, I don't think Fantino was chief of police in 2012. Uh, that would, would have been Bill Blair. Oh, well, I might have my date wrong, but right. it said uh, he, he was there in his capacity okay. at that... Uh, at that event uh, when he was a chief of police. Well, George, I mean, this is all very incendiary stuff. I don't, I don't know what to make of it. However, um, we'll find out soon. Well, perhaps. Uh, but, but back to the the algorithm and the election scam. Uh, uh, I mean, we have we have two ridings. We have reports from from Toronto Centre, and we have uh, this returning officer or polling clerk from from Parkdale. Uh, now, two ridings doth not make a conspiracy one might argue. Uh, well, let's just say you have someone who's like a lawyer for professional sports, like Alan Eagleson, and he has contracts with many hockey players. And then you find out he kind of defrauded one. And then the other hockey players look and go, hey, wait a minute, he's handling my accounts too. And then they find out later after they check the books that he was defrauding more than one. He was defrauding many. And then he's sort of disgraced and taken out of the picture. Uh, that's the big thing about an investigation, is sometimes you only catch the one crime first, and then when you catch the one crime, you start going over the books for a lot of other things, and then you find irregularities and more irregularities, and you realize you're in a room with a big elephant. Okay, so why hasn't, for example, you mentioned the riding of Parkdale and, and the incumbent who was defeated, Peggy Nash, member of the New Democratic Party, uh, and it's interesting, you mentioned the polling, and, and it was very curious. I've never seen an election cycle like this where the the, um, the polls switched so often. At one time, they were projecting an NDP minority, and then uh, then it was a conservative minority, then a liberal majority, and then the liberals were in third place, and we were basically counting them out. Back and forth it went. Well, what was that all about? Were they just toying with us? Uh, no, they were tweaking the algorithm to get the desired result. Okay. I believe the first polls were accurate, and then that wasn't satisfying to the shadow government or the soon-to-be shadow government, the secret power players, they wanted a majority government, and it couldn't be Harper. So they tweaked the polls so that incorrect data could be put into the algorithm to get an improper result. Okay. And I think a lot of people just wanted to get rid of Harper. A lot of people I've talked to in the Liberal and the NDP party said they don't really care about the ethics of anything as long as they got Harper. And, but I do care. I care for a reason. The whole fundamental basis of this country and this nation is built on a free, fair, and upfront vote. If the vote turns out to be manipulated or defrauded and we can't depend on the vote, well, then we're on a slippery slope to anarchy where we know the election's over when the tanks stop, like in many other places. I don't ever want to see our country get to a place like that. I want, no, you know, even if we elected the bloc as a majority government, I better learn some words in French. It's a whole lot better than we get to that slippery slope that elections can't be depended on, and we resort to the brute force of arms. So where where are these uh, de defeated candidates that were in ridings where you know word on the street was that they were they were winning, or the the polling clerks were convinced that uh, one particular candidate was going to win? Why are they not screaming bloody murder? Why are they not demanding recounts? If this is widespread across the country. You would think that there are other Toronto centers, other Parkdales, other spurned candidates. Uh, why are they not? Where's the hue and the cry? 
they don't know. They actually, because no one knows they use the algorithm except for a very select people in media and the higher end of the political hierarchy of parties. The average person thinks it's the ballot box and the ballot that decide things. So they're unaware of the fact that there is a problem. It's like, you know, you feel itchy and scratchy, but you've never heard of the disease you have. So you're not going to be the slightest bit concerned until someone tells you there is a disease and those are the symptoms. So with the release of this show, people are going to start to learn this. We may not be able to correct anything from this election, but I think we can be far more educated consumers of media and uh, what we expect from the ballot box in future if we know the tricks and we're not going to be fooled again, I hope. And uh, this is all start as an education process. Some of the uh, political power brokers may have cut a deal to say, okay, we'll cede this to you this time for a promise or something in the future just to get rid of Harper because there's so much of the political agenda that we agree on that uh, it wouldn't be accomplished in a minority government. We'd be in a deadlock no matter who had power and who didn't have power. The only would, thing we could do is force an election. Wouldn't this... Um, wouldn't this plot unravel if i mean you would require it would it would require the complicity of polling clerks returning officers no, across the country um, wouldn't it i think they're just in the dark you submit your results and like most people they heard things but they didn't put anything together it's just the good fortune that uh, one of our polling uh, people was a good friend of uh, your uh, colleague in arms nelson thal and his wife wanda and uh, who just happened to meet me uh, a few years back. And uh, so you couldn't find a better person to be uh, <laughs> involved in election counting and, ball- and the balloting and uh, collecting information from other people and passing that on to me to say that, uh, hey, this, this was uh, way out of line. And I think if other polling clerks hear this now, they might be inclined to come forward and say, hey, this happened here, this happened there, this happened here, this happened there. But when you don't know there's a fire, you can't pull the alarm. Why bother then with an algorithm? Why not just discount the results and, uh, you know, who's ever at the top of this scheme, just sort of manipulate the numbers after the votes? Uh, it would be like, you know, with the electronic uh, voting machines that, that are being instituted in many in many states now in the United States. They can literally, well, I should say figuratively, unplug those. Uh, electronic voting machines so that, you know, uh, certain districts, the votes don't count if they know that those districts are going to vote heavily Democratic or Republican or whoever's, you know, who's ever uh, uh, trying to fix the game. Uh, why go to all this trouble of creating this algorithm if you're just going to fix the, uh, fix the end result? Well, the beauty of the algorithm is it's the guilty party. And most people can't even begin to understand the complexity of the math. You're going to have to be very good at math to work on the formulas that uh, are just in the Ph.D. thesis that, uh, you know, I've tagged along with this. And uh, so it's just above 98% of the people's heads how they arrived at this conclusion. If we just Mine included. Box. George, I gotta, I gotta, we, we got to go, but uh, quickly, how can we hear Conspiracy Cafe? Well, my website is conspiracy-cafe.com.org, and, uh, or you just Google my name. I'm all over the Internet. Uh, the, the hits are just growing and growing and growing. We've had a record uh, last couple of weeks just out of this world. I haven't seen numbers like that because people are starting to learn. There's one way to change all this. You just have to change the channel. All right, George Freund, and that's F-R-E-U-N-D. Thank you, my friend. Stay on top of this. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Rosemary Allen Guiley and our Paranormal News Roundup when The Conspiracy Show continues. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is a leading expert in the metaphysical and paranormal fields with more than 60 books published on a wide range of paranormal, spiritual, and mystical topics, including nine single-volume encyclopedias and reference works. Her work is translated into 15 languages. Her current work focuses on interdimensional entity contact experiences, problem-haunting, spirit and entity attachments, the afterlife the afterlife and spirit communications, psychic skills, dream work for well-being, spiritual growth and development, angels, past and parallel lives, an investigation of unusual paranormal activity. And she joins us uh, every month at this time. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, how are you? 
Richard, I am still recovering from an amazing Halloween in Salem, Massachusetts, which is the mecca of all places to be on Halloween. And this year it was really amazing and very intense. So what did you go out as? Uh, Well, I was a high priestess because one of the witches' balls had uh, tarot as the theme uh, for their uh, annual dance. And uh, uh, Joe went as uh, Lovecraft tarot. and uh, we had a lot of fun. <laughs> I did. I did my Black Mirror gazing event, uh, which uh, was my fourth one there. Sold out again, uh, bigger than ever. The streets were jammed. The restaurants were packed. But we had an amazing time. That is the place to be on Halloween, to be sure. Got to ask you about um, an interesting story about this. I guess a, it's kind of a subculture of real-life vampires, but it, it's actually in the Atlantic, which is a pretty prestigious uh, magazine, and um, it's uh, titled Life Among the Vampires, How the, the Real-Life People Who Feed on Blood Became an Organized Community with Its Own Rules and Traditions. Great story. What, what, what can you tell me uh, about real-life vampires? These are for real. They certainly are, and this culture has been around several decades now. Um, John Browning, who did is doing the research on that, John e- Edgar Browning, uh, we know each other, and uh, I've done a little bit of research in this area myself. And this subculture uh, probably has existed for a long time in a very loose, unorganized way because uh, there are blood fetishists, people who like to drink blood, but they've never really particularly called themselves vampires in terms of the popular culture uh, icon, you know, that we, we know as a vampire. And uh, the popularity of Anne Rice and uh, role-playing games, uh, especially uh, Vampire Masquerade, um, have contributed to the creation of communities of people who identify themselves as vampires. Many of them are energy vampires, not blood drinkers. Yeah, I know a few Um, of those. (laughs) I think we all do. Uh, And in fact, in the vampire community, there have been surveys that uh, indicate most people identify themselves more as energy vampires, but still they consider themselves to be distinctly different from ordinary people. They feel they were born different with something different in their consciousness and maybe even in their genetics. But the blood drinkers... Uh, do comprise a, an important part of this community, and they have um, many of them have uh, rituals for this. They have uh, rules that they follow. There are codes of ethics for both the don- donor and the drinker, uh, and they say that they absolutely need it for their health. That they feel much better. They call and themselves sanguinarians. Sanguinarians, and. Uh, the, the odd thing is that uh, because blood has an emetic property to it, that if you drink too, the average person, if you drink too much blood, you're going to throw up. It's not going to agree with you. So, um, you know, feasting away for uh, a long time on somebody's entire um, quantity of blood, it, it just wouldn't play uh, in uh, normal terms. But uh, the sanguinarians may have just a small amount every now and then, uh, maybe a, a small glassful or a shot glassful or something like that. It's it's not like the movies. And um, uh, I'm guessing one of the rules would be this. Obviously, this has to be all consensual. Uh, yes, according to the ethics, it's consensual. Uh, they get themselves tested to make sure that uh, their blood is clean. And uh, they have uh, even ritual knives that they use, and uh, sometimes, um, you know, it's quite an elaborate ritual. Do they have an aversion to light? Well, some of them do, um, and it's difficult to know whether it's uh, something that's physiological or just kind of a lifestyle choice. I'm wondering, has it, been, has it ever been written up in, the, in one of any of the psychiatric journals as some sort of... Um psychiatric uh, illness or disorder? Well, there there haven't been too many formal uh, academic or scientific studies done of this community, and um, John Edgar Browning, who is doing this for his dissertation, has been uh, working down in New Orleans for a couple of years now, uh, interviewing these people and even living among them, and there have been some folklorists who've taken on studies uh, but it's been primarily the vampire community uh, itself that has done its own surveys and studies. The Atlanta Vampire Alliance 
has been doing this for years, uh, surveying the community and compiling statistics and trying to educate the media. I think they've been dismissed by the academics and the scientists as fringe people who uh, have fantasies that they're playing out. But for people in the community, this, this is a genuine uh, way of life, and uh, many of them are very committed to it. Okay, when we come back, uh, we just passed a couple of weeks ago, uh, Back to the Future Day, uh, those familiar with the uh, uh, Michael J. Fox vehicle, and uh, now uh, renewed interest in a gentleman by the name of John Titer, uh, who uh, uh, was a self-proclaimed time traveler coming, coming from the year 2036. Uh, we'll discuss uh, John Titer. Whatever happened to John Titer? When the Conspiracy Show, along with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, continues. Stay with us. Position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And we are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, who joins us once a month at this time. And uh, her, her website is visionaryliving.com, visionaryliving.com. Uh, Alrighty, uh, Rosemary, a few years ago, well, it's probably been about a decade, we, we began to hear about this uh, self-proclaimed time traveler by the name of John Titer, who was sort of doing the, the rounds on, on various uh, shows and, and said that he came uh, to us, uh, to our time, from the year 2036. So he came to us from the future uh, to warn us of a, a nuclear war. And um, uh, then all of a sudden he sort of just disappeared and we never heard from him again. And, of course, now again with the um, the... Uh, the Back to the Future uh, Day, which happened a few weeks ago, uh, people are talking about John Titer again. What can you tell us about John Titer? It's a very peculiar case, Richard, because uh, uh, there have been other puzzling time-traveling cases that just can't be dismissed, and I don't think we can dismiss this one as a guy who pulled a hoax. And it, it happened in 2000, and uh, he said that he... Uh, he was part of a military unit, and he was coming back to um, 1975. Uh, he was stopping in 2000 along the way, but he'd gone back to 1975 to get an old IBM computer that he said they needed in the future uh, to debug old computers that they were still using uh, because of this nuclear war that they felt would help uh, benefit society. And he said he lived in a small community. Life was very different. There'd been a limited nuclear war between America and Russia. And uh, he was quite vocal for some time. And uh, he provided schematics of some of his devices and talked about his time travel device and even offered to take volunteers into the future. And the process was quite elaborate, required traveling in some old Chevy, I think. Um, and going to certain places at certain times, and that they would work their way back to the, to the future. I don't think there were any takers on it. But uh, he made certain predictions that did not come to pass, that uh, the 2004 Olympics were going to be canceled. Of course, uh, this nuclear war was supposed to take place in 2015, and even though we're not quite done with the year yet, nothing uh, is even um, uh, remotely on the horizon in that regard. And uh, other predictions of his about years that have already passed never came to pass, so uh, skeptics were inclined to dismiss this. But uh, he also pointed out, and this is what people who study time traveling also point out, is that the very act of time traveling alters um, a timeline in reality. Right. And if he was a time traveler and successfully took something back to the future that was going to help the future you get into these conundrums about how does it change the past. Right, the grandfather paradox. Exactly. And so it's, uh, it's, it's really a believable story from the standpoint of, of time travel then, and that the things that had happened in his timeline were now changed because he, had, he and maybe other time travelers had been able uh, to go back and alter things. Seems to me I read recently where something about that computer that he went back to 1975 to fetch, to take into the future, um, something like, I don't know, a part of that computer ended up on eBay? Did you read about that? I didn't hear about that, but there was another interesting thing about the computer. It was an IBM 5100, and interestingly, uh, he talked about a feature of that computer that existed, but IBM had never made public. 
very interesting. How mm. would he know about that? Exactly. Wow. All right. And, and he, uh, he hasn't been heard from in quite some time. Uh, no, he just disappeared. Mm. Interesting. All right. Uh, I've got to ask you while time permits. Uh, Loch Ness Monster was PR stunt dreamed up for tourists in a London pub. Now, I know this gets in your craw, Rosemary, because, <laughs> uh, you know, every once in a while, one of these stories comes around. This was a hoax. That was a hoax. Uh, and this is not the first time we've heard that the Loch Ness Monster was a hoax. Uh, but you take umbrage with that. Well, I do, because... Um uh, we we have these people who uh, proclaim that they've done a hoax or they know that something is a hoax, and then that's supposed to dismiss an entire story, an entire account, a witness. Uh, we have this all the time in the UFO community. Uh, and why are we believing these people instead of the eyewitnesses? Well, here we have a, this is a science historian who wrote this book, In a Monstrous Commotion, The Mysteries of Loch Ness, Professor Gareth Williams, suggesting the monster was invented, even names the gentleman, by D.G. Garrity, who was recruited by several Scottish hotels to improve the area's tourism following the Great Depression. Now, it's entirely plausible to me that um, he was uh, hired or maybe, um, you know, collaborated with some people to boost interest in the Loch Ness Monster in order to encourage tourism. But sightings of water beasts in that lake and also in the River Ness near the lake uh, go back for centuries. There's one even associated with St. Columba in, uh, I think it was the 6th or 7th century. And uh, there were sightings in the late 19th century as well. Uh, so he's making the argument here that, well, we, nobody really saw this monster prior to uh, the early 1930s, and that's why it was, uh, you know, this explains uh, why it was all a hoax. These um, uh, parties cooked this whole thing up for tourism. To me, this falls in the same category as the Doug and Dave crop circle hoaxers. Exactly. You know, these two guys who came forward and said, we've been making all the crop circles. And so all, you know, all the skeptics say, oh, well, of course, you know, mystery solved, let's all go home. And uh, maybe Doug and Dave actually went out and made a circle or two, but they certainly uh, didn't debunk the whole field. And um, uh, there were also claims that uh, the Amityville Horror uh, case was uh, cooked up over a kitchen table, uh, a few odd incidences were, you know, blown out of proportion into a big demonic case. And um, this seems to be uh, um, uh, a factor in a lot of uh, remarkable uh, cases. There are hoaxes. We have them all the time where individuals, especially in cryptozoology, uh, attempt to pass something off, especially like a Bigfoot carcass. Uh, but uh, I don't think that applies here in the Loch Ness Monster. Water monsters have uh, been reported around the world for centuries. They're, they're part of our folklore and mythology. And um, uh, there's also uh, a comment in this um, uh, skepticism uh, claim that uh, the uh, hoaxers were inspired by what is described as the Canadian fictional lake monster, Ogopogo. Whoever got the idea that Ogopogo was fictional? Oh, exactly. I mean, Here uh, again is a, another water monster, the sightings of which uh, have um, been around for centuries. Exactly, and not too far from where I'm sitting in, uh, in uh, Lake Erie, there is um, uh, a sea creature or a water creature associated with Lake Erie. I think they call her Bessie. Uh, and also, well, you know, uh, all of these... Uh, glacial lakes in, in northern Ontario, if you, te- if you speak to the locals, uh, you know, just about every lake has a legend associated with it, which I guess uh, leads me to suspect that what we are talking about in many of these instances is some, is simply some heretofore uncatalogued, undiscovered, uh, a creature that could date back, um, to, uh, you know, pre-Ice Age times. It's certainly possible. I've always been of the opinion that these um, monsters and cryptids are interdimensional. And one possibility from that perspective is that if there was a sudden eruption of sightings in the 1930s, 
uh, it could have been an interdimensional portal opening like we had with the Mothman wave in 1966-67. And uh, there could be just these periods where these uh, interdimensional boundaries get thin enough for a lot of sightings to occur, and uh, then they get a little thicker and, uh, you know, the sightings dip down. Um, I think we we have to consider all sorts of possibilities, but um, um, this claim that uh, Loch Ness was a publicity stunt, I don't buy it at all. All right. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us. Our paranormal investigator joins us once a month on our Paranormal News Roundup and her website again, visionaryliving.com, visionaryliving.com. We are, uh, I guess, about a month and a bit away from the, um, it'll be the 35th anniversary of the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident, and this took place um, near the Air Force Base. It was a joint sort of Air Force Base, um, Woodbridge, and... um, uh, what was the other one? I'm trying to remember now. Anyway, two two Air Force bases in Bentwaters. In Bentwaters, thank you. Bentwaters and Woodbridge. One was operated by the RAF and the other by the United States Air Force. And there was this celebrated uh, UFO sighting uh, by uh, military personnel, military police, and so forth, uh, on a few days leading up to uh, Christmas. And uh, and now uh, it is reported that people and I've been to uh, Rendlesham Forest and and uh, it's a beautiful uh, beautiful area, uh, vast sort of uh, forest. People walk their dogs there, and now people are reporting that their dogs are are getting sick. Um, now, is there a connection? That's the question. I mean, 35 years later, you think there's a connection between these dogs getting sick and uh, I'm not sure if they were in close proximity to where these UFOs supposedly touched down, but what do you know, Rosemary? Well, it certainly makes a lot of sense, Richard, because uh, there have been other UFO uh, landing sites where vegetation has been killed off for a considerable period of time, where tree growth has been altered, uh, where people and animals have um, been sick, and uh, so 35 years, um, it, it's not out of the question. Uh, so many of these close encounter uh, with craft cases uh, in, involve um, what appears to be a, a lot of radiation problems. And um, if these craft are emitting some sort of high-intensity radiation that would affect um, the health of living things, who knows how long it could last. And uh, so I'm not surprised at all to hear these reports. I have been out to the uh, Rendlesham area myself, and uh, uh, it, it's an altered landscape uh, 35 years later. It is indeed. Um, I mean, when you walk around, uh, I mean, you're, you're, you're a sensitive. Uh, do you feel anything unusual when you're walking around uh, uh, in that area? Well, the area uh, does have a, a history of hauntings as well, and uh, to me, it just feels like um, the uh, there's something changed about the landscape. And um, we find similar cases where there uh, have been sightings of craft coming down and landing on the ground. Uh, and uh, I think, um, if, if I recall, the uh, where Travis Walton had his experience. Oh, Snowflake, uh, Arizona? Yes, there were some uh, permanent alterations to the tree growth there. That, sure. Um, well, I mean, Penniston went on, was uh, was just, I believe, recently Jim Penniston, and I'm not sure if John Burroughs was also affected, uh, but I believe he was, and, and uh, they were denied uh, uh, health benefits from the Veterans Association, but those were, I think they recently they recently changed that, or at least they're trying to get those gentlemen uh, some benefits, and they believe that they were their illnesses were caused by being in the proximity of these these uh, UFOs. Yes, Burroughs finally did get oh, some he did. money. That's good. Um, and uh, we've had other cases like the Cash Landrum case uh, here in America, uh, where people have had uh, cancer after being exposed to uh, close contact with a craft, 
and uh, radiation burns, and, and there have been cases down in South America oh. like that as well. Well, who knows then? Maybe there is something to this uh, story about these uh, dogs. Uh, Rosemary, sadly, we are out of time. Thank you for joining us as usual. And uh, again, I'll direct people to the website, visionaryliving.com. Thank you, Rosemary. Thank you, Richard. Good night. Good night. All right, back next week with a brand new show. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, I'm coming home. Good night.